You know, as we're preaching through Philippians, which we'll be in today, I've had a huge conviction in my heart of uh, the Lord building unity within his church. Uh, what I didn't realize is that we were going to all be united by all having boys in the last, like, three years. So we are having a boy, too. Apparently, that's what Cornerstone is making. So uh, we are excited about that, nervous, probably April more than I. Uh, hey, Ben. Um, but yes, anyway, so just as uh, in case you didn't know, we just wanted to announce that we are having a boy, too. Um, and typically, uh, well, you know, with the joy of life and celebration, uh, there's just two specific people um, or families that I just wanted to pray for. Before we open up uh, in Philippians 2, um, because both of them have uh, mothers or mothers, mother-in-laws in hospice right now. And so uh, it's not only our church, but also uh, Pastor Rodney with the Baptist Church. Um, so I just want to take a moment to pray um, for comfort and uh, in the Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, uh, Lord, we lift up the Davises to you um, as, as well as uh, Rodney and his wife, God. Uh, Lord, we, Paul doesn't tell the Thessalonians that we don't grieve when we lose people that are near and dear to our heart. He just says that we don't grieve as those without hope because our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Lord. And we thank you that both of these ladies, God, who are near to seeing you, nearer than we know we are right now, Lord, will be standing in your presence soon, Lord. God, that that is the hope that they have. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we could serve uh, our people um, who still hurt in this time and have sorrow, God. May uh, we come alongside them and be able to help in any way possible, Lord, uh, even if it only be an encouraging word and a reminder of hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm trying to get this clicker. That's, ah, ask and you shall receive. Philippi, uh, please, if you're, you know, these monitors are new as well, so if the lettering or anything we were trying to uh, play around with that, making sure so that uh, probably is no surprise, a picture of Philippi. Hey, look at that. All right. Um, yeah, kind of small. Philippians 2, 27 through 30, sorry, through chapter 3, 1, entitled Man of Sorrows. Let me just pick up and start reading. Now, the Apostle Paul writes, Indeed, Epaphroditus was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice when you see him and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him and the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Heavenly Father, God, as we uh, study uh, this letter uh, that Paul wrote to Philippi, 
just continually says rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. But also is, is, uh, does not go without trials and suffering. And, and even says in chapter 1, verse 29, not only have you appointed us to believe, but also to suffer. And yet, there's still a command for us to rejoice. God, would you make it clear this morning what we have to rejoice about, Lord, even in the midst of suffering, God, even those of us who may have sorrow upon sorrow in our heart, Lord, and feel like at this moment we have no relief. We, we have more than just a relief. Would you make that clear today, Lord, that we have redemption in our Savior, Jesus Christ? Amen. God had mercy on him, and not only on him, not only on Epaphroditus, but Paul says also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. I, I can't exactly put my finger on the reason that I, I love this passage so much. And I think it has something to do with, with God showing mercy, or God's mercy to Epaphroditus that, that spared his life which Paul in turn says, it spared him sorrow upon sorrow. There's, there's something about this one specific act of God's mercy toward Paul that truly resonates with my heart. And I think it's because it reveals the kindness of God toward his chosen servant or his chosen instrument, as Acts 9 says, whom he called and chose to suffer greatly for Jesus' sake. Maybe it's, it's just the pain and suffering of Paul that's easy to identify with. And like Paul, uh, none of us are strangers to sorrow. In fact, I would say most of us, if not all of us, could probably say, uh, certain seasons in our life have been so difficult that it, 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 it's felt like our grief and anxiety has just suffocated us. It's, it's, it can get hard to breathe at certain times. And, and I don't mean the minor issues that, that caused us a little discomfort. A little discomfort. I'm talking about the true hardships that we have had to face, which produced extreme suffering. The times that we were consumed by anguish and distress. And I would, I would consider myself naive if I believe that even some of you, some of us here today, we're not facing a, 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 sort of, a set of circumstances which feels like the weight of the world is just resting upon your shoulders. I hope you know, loved one, that, that if, if that is you today, if the weight of the world is upon your shoulders and you're carrying a burden of great sorrow, be assured that that suffering is, is not unusual for you. If we take God at his word, 
we will conclude that Christianity is not a religion that eliminates suffering. Rather, Christianity guarantees us that every single one of us will experience great sorrow. We're going to suffer. The word of God says that. It says to expect it. And God appoints it. However, <laughs> even though the word of God says Christianity is no stranger to suffering, it is the only religion, the only, the, the only truth that is able to provide genuine peace and comfort in the midst of such great distress and disappointment. I, for one, would want nothing to do with a religion that has no answers or remedies for a, a humanity that, that, that is plagued with such heartache. So, as we look into the life of the Apostle Paul today, we will see Paul was a man of constant sorrows, but we will also see that the Apostle Paul was a man of endless joy. And the question for us today then is how did Paul find perpetual joy amid such great sorrow? First, Paul understood we've been chosen to suffer. Have you ever seen the photos that say uh, uh, what people think this is like, and then under it it says what it's actually like? For instance, there's, there's a photo that says what people think being a mother is like. And it's a photo of a dad serving food to his kids, the entire family sitting around the table with, waiting patiently with their hands folded together, and everything appears to just be nice and neat in the kitchen. Mom is even in a beautiful wardrobe, and, and, and her home is just in perfect order. And underneath it says what being a mom is actually like. And under that photo, <laughs> there's a photo of a dad who's asleep on a couch. The kids are all a mess with Lord knows what's all over them. And the mom looks like she hasn't been given an opportunity to take a shower in at least three days. Now, hopefully you're familiar with that idea, with, with that photo. If not, that's fine. I, just, I want to apply that idea uh, of what people think the life of Paul is like and then compare it to what Paul says his life is like in reality. So first, what people think the life of an apostle, which Paul was, uh, would be like. With the influx of media and journalists, I couldn't help but think of, of an interview with the Apostle Paul. What an interview with the Apostle Paul would have been like in first century A.D. You can imagine the, the, the journalist asking, well, what's it like to be one of Jesus' greatest apostles, right? One of Jesus' greatest missionaries. I'm sure most people would expect uh, Paul to respond with, it's terrific. We fly on personal jets. We stay at the grandest hotels. The food is absolutely amazing because we have our own personal chef. The best part is 
we don't have to spend any money on alcohol because Jesus just turns our water bottles into wine. Can I say that in a Baptist church? Sorry, don't tell him I said that. I mean, one might just say that being an apostle is the greatest job ever. That's what people might think being the Apostle Paul or an apostle is like. But I want to look at the Bible, uh, one specific passage, to, to see what the life of Paul is actually like. 2 Corinthians 11, start in verse 23. Paul says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times, five times, I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was pelted with stones. Three times, I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all of the churches. As staggering as that is, right? it might even be more astonishing that, that, that this passage is just part of Paul's suffering. It's just part of his life, right? I mean, we can't forget even the letter to the Philippians, Paul's writing it from prison. And while he's in prison, not only is he confined, but there's other people who are using that as an opportunity to stir up more trouble for him. And Paul knows sooner or later he's going to be executed for his uncompromising faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the kicker. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's exactly what Paul signed up for. Acts 9, starting in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him to a vision, called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Verse 16, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
scared the microphone. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. He must suffer for my name. Paul was chosen by God to suffer for the sake of the gospel. I mean, there's no fine print, loved one. It's it's clear. Suffering was, was, was communicated to the apostle Paul. You're going to suffer for my sake, Paul. And Paul obeyed. <laughs> Paul obeyed no matter the cost. So that the glorious message of Jesus Christ would go out and fill the entire earth. <laughs> Paul, Paul didn't obey just because he loved suffering. Rather, he obeyed because he loved Jesus. Once Paul understood that the entirety of human history was pointing toward to its redemption in Jesus Christ, he knew that the only thing that mattered on this side of eternity were that sinners were told that Jesus died and rose again. And then once he proclaimed that message to the Jews and the Gentiles and the kings and the nations, called them to believe in Christ and repent from their sins. His motivation for for ministry, his motivation to to suffer well, it was simple. He was willing to suffer for Christ's sake because he had come to understand that Jesus suffered for him. You see, as as much suffering as Paul was going to face, was even promised he was going to face, Paul knew that he was not the true man of sorrows. Jesus is. Jesus was the man of sorrows. Suffering has a purpose. Suffering has a purpose. We see this truth that suffering has purpose ultimately in the death of Jesus Christ. We sang it this morning. Isaiah 53. The prophet says, 700 years before Christ arrived, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We talked about it in Philippians 2 a few weeks ago. The Son of God wrapped his divine glory in incarnate flesh. And and the great prophet and priest and king that that the law promised God's people was rejected by his people. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his his wounds we are healed. 
Jesus willingly, willingly took our grief and our sorrow. And, and in our arrogance, every single one of him rejected him with the sin of unbelief at some point in our life. And yet, knowing our rebellious hearts, Jesus still gave his head to be crowned with thorns. He still gave his back to be flogged with whips, his hands and his feet to be nailed with stakes, and he gave his side to be pierced by a spear. Pierced for our transgressions. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All of us like sheep have gone astray from God. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Isaiah didn't know it was Jesus there, but just in case there's any questions right now, he, the Lord laid our iniquity on Jesus. All of us like sheep, Isaiah said. None of us sought God. None of us loved God. None of us wanted to care to obey his commands. None of us deserves God's forgiveness. None of us were worthy of Jesus even becoming flesh, let alone dying for sinful humans. And yet, he took our iniquity upon himself. On the cross, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might receive his righteousness. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The lion of Judah did not open his mouth and instead became a lamb to be led to the slaughter. And they sentenced him to condemnation as they cried out, crucify him. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, there we go, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. A rich man in his death. He was laid in Joseph's tomb. Because it was the will of God that he should suffer and die in order to receive the fury of God's wrath instead of us who deserve it. The suffering servant passage here in Isaiah, it's, it's the heart of the great hymn, Man of Sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was he. 
sacrificed to set us free. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in our place condemned he stood and sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It's, it's that. Paul, if it, Paul understood once, once he was born again. <laughs> the, the revelation of the suffering servant here in Isaiah being Jesus Christ. And understanding that Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, became the Lamb of God in order to die for undeserving sinners. And that Paul, in his unbelief, as religious as he was, as, as, as studious and scholarly as he was with the old, in the Old Testament, he rejected the promised one. And yet, on the road to Damascus, he was going to be saved. And, and knew and, and came to a point where Christ's suffering for him would always be the heart of his unending joy. Paul realized that while his suffering was, was intended for the gospel to go forth, Jesus' suffering was intended for the gospel to be made possible. And for Paul, the forgiveness of sins with the hope of seeing the glory of God in Christ one day. To live as Christ, to die as gain. That is how Paul could live a life of constant sorrows and yet always be overflowing with joy. It may not be news, but I've got news for all of us today. Like Paul. We, too, have been chosen to share in Christ's sufferings. Peter writes, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. I can hear someone ask, I could ask myself, but if God is good, I don't understand why he would appoint this specific tragedy in my life. What's the point? And how in the world can this be purposed for my good? Nothing good can come of that. that have you been there have you suffered so greatly even though that you believe you are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ that you still don't understand why this one trial is something that you have to face and what good can come of it why is it happening what's our answer I don't know I don't know why that's happening but I do know this, the will of God was to crush Jesus by crucifying him on the cross. And I'm certain that that turned out for all of our good. And if he didn't spare his only son, 
It should come as no surprise that God would, would appoint us to suffer also for his sake. And no, of course, of course it doesn't feel good at the time. Loved ones, all of our sorrow and, and every drop of grief in the Lord is being used and stored for an eternal glory. And when, when we need reminded of that, run to the cross of Christ and stay there until you are fully convinced that your suffering has purpose, divine purpose. Finally, if, if we want to find joy in suffering, whoa, <laughs> don't read that. Dwell on the good of Godness in your affliction. I want to make one last observation. Uh, we're actually we're going to get back to today's text, specifically uh, Epaphroditus being spared, which led to Paul being spared sorrow upon sorrow. Just one, one last observation regarding the life of Paul in that. And it's, it's this kindness that God showed him by sparing Epaphroditus' life. And Paul may have been chosen to be an apostle of Jesus. Which is a wonderful way to serve. But by no means was Paul shown favoritism because of it. We, we, we can see that slightly in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7 through 10, where God denies Paul's request multiple times. Now I'm really wishing I would have put that scripture on the PowerPoint. I'll just read it to you. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, Paul writes, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Can you imagine saying to the world, oh, what has God done in your life? Well, he's given me a messenger of Satan for my good. <laughs> That'll preach. It'll be like, whew, I'm going somewhere else next Sunday. Concerning this, Paul says, verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Lord, take it away, please. But he said to me, now you know it, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties. Why? For the sake of Christ, he says. And in, in this passage, Paul, Paul said, uh, sorry, God tells Paul, my grace is sufficient. 
We've all had to come to that realization that Christians, at some point in our life where we really wanted something and God did not provide it, or in our weakness, whatever we had to go through, and we had to grip and hang on with dear life to my grace is sufficient. We know that reality if we've walked with the Lord. But it's that reality that makes this passage of today so sweet. Because in Philippians 2, Verse 27, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. This time, God did not deny Paul's request. This time, God spared him this grief by showing him mercy. I think these two things compared to one another, my grace is sufficient, yet kindness and mercy good for us to remember because although God appoints many hardships for our life he also chooses to withhold them we can't even be fully aware of how many sorrows and, 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 and anguish God has withheld from us why? because it's never happened to us But at the same time, as God's children, we're not entitled to it, right? We, we should not demand it, nor should we just expect it. it. It's being presumptuous. We don't know the will of God in all things, and nor do we possess his infinite wisdom and knowledge on how he works all things together for our good in his purpose he's not obligated to give us relief he's not obligated to spare us from anguish but maybe even more importantly we have reason to rejoice in our suffering we paul uh, as paul says i take pleasure in weaknesses insults hardships persecutions and then difficulties it's like he wants it, right? Paul wants to suffer because he knows that's a means to something greater. And, and that's why he rejoices and why we have a reason to rejoice in suffering because suffering is the route that God uses to direct us back to him and to depend on him and rely on him and take comfort in him. Suffering is the is the truly the way of the Lord to draw us to him and fill us with his peace and his strength and his joy in any affliction. I know you know sorrow. Do you know the goodness of God in the midst of affliction? Let's conclude with one final thought. On that note, are you familiar with John Newton? Sorry, that <laughs> rhetorical question. I wasn't expecting an answer. He's the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. I won't go into the whole history, but he's good to learn about. A few years ago, my wife April bought me a book, which is a compilation of a bunch of his letters. 
One of those is to his friend, Mr. Catlett, if I'm saying that right, I don't know. It was a correspondence sent back and forth between John Newton and his friend about being satisfied and content with worldly pleasures and religion. Newton writes to his friend and says, you know all that a life of pleasure can give. I know likewise, but I need not tell you that this present life is not made up of pleasurable incidents only. Pain, sickness, losses, disappointments, injuries, and affronts will more or less at one time or other be our lot. And he asks his friend, can you bear these trials better than I? How often do you toss and disquiet yourself like a wild bull in a net when things cross your expectations? How often are your thoughts more engrossed by what you see that you must be more keenly sensible of what you feel? He doesn't trust Christ. John's trying to convince him of something here and, and says, you can have all the pleasures of the world that you want outside of Christ, but I can have them too. But what you can't have is the pleasures of Christ and suffering that I have. And so he says, you cannot view these trials as appointed by a wise and heavenly father in service to your good, but I can. You cannot taste the sweetness of his promises, nor feel the secret support of his strength in a single hour of affliction, but I can. You cannot cast your burden and care upon him as to find sensible relief for your spirit, nor can you see his hand engaged in effecting your deliverance, but I can. Loved ones, do you know the goodness of God in afflictions like that? Do you want to? I do. And if you're like me, then we must run to Christ in our anguish. And if we do, the word of God promises, just like Paul, just like John Newton, that we will taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, well, that's a heavy message, Lord. But that's but your, your plan of redemption and the suffering of Jesus Christ, both God and man, on the cross and, and bringing him back to life and bringing him to the throne of heaven in exaltation to one day return and consummate all things. Lord, you are wise and you are good and you provide the answer to all suffering, anguish, and heartache that are outside the doors this morning, Lord. God, we pray that, that as you put trial 
in our life and, and, and appoint even suffering, God, Lord, that we would draw near to you and that we would see your goodness and know your goodness even in our affliction. And God, we pray that that would be a light or spur someone on who has never trusted you, God, to go to Jesus, believe that he died and rose again, and repent from their sin, do away with worldly pleasures, and be filled by the one who is true glory. God, we ask this in Jesus' name.